John 5, verses 1 through 16. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Hannah Carnes. <clears throat> Well, throughout the spring and throughout Lent, we've been looking at these questions that Jesus asks in the gospel accounts. And one of the reasons why we're doing that is because questions reveal things to you, and they reveal certain things about you to yourself. You, you're, you're able to discover things about you. And, and the question that Jesus asks in this passage, I think, may be one of the most profound questions that he asks of all the questions that we've looked at, I think this is, this is the question of questions. This is the question that, I mean, I, I've thought about this question for years. I feel like I continue to come back to this question. It continues to come up in conversations I have with people. And the question is, uh, <clears throat> there in verse 6, he says, do you want to be healed? One of the translations might say, uh, do you want to be well which you think on the surface, that sounds like such a dumb question. It's so obvious. Like, who, would, who in their right mind would not want to be healed, would not want to be better? And then as we're going to see, um, it's not that obvious. Because what this question does is it exposes and it reveals we have a pretty complicated relationship with our suffering and with our pain and our sickness and so there's a lot of ground to cover, so let's just jump in. I want to show you three things from this passage. I want to show you uh, the addiction of our suffering, the deception of our suffering, and then the lesson of our suffering. So addiction and deception and the lesson of it. So first, what do I mean by the addiction of our suffering? Well, let's look at the um, story and get into the details for a second. In, in this whole story pivots around this pool. You find out about this pool in verse uh, 2, that apparently there was this pool, this, uh, this body of water in this uh, engineered, created space that every now and then, inadvertently, the water would just kind of start swirling. 
And so some of the scholars believe maybe there was an underground aquifer or something that was causing the waters to move, but because the waters moved in kind of this inexplicable way, it kind of created this urban legend that it was angels that were spinning up the water, and it created this superstition that if you're the first person to get into the water after it started to be swirled, then you'll be healed. And so because this rumor was so prevalent, it, it attracted a lot of sick people and lame people and blind people. And they all just kind of gather around this pool waiting, waiting for the waters to start moving. And that's where we meet this one dude who uh, you find out in verse 5. He's been sitting there and he's waiting. And you find out he's been paralyzed for 38 years, unable to move for almost four decades. To put that into perspective, this is somebody who hasn't walked since 1985, which, yes, was 38 years ago, believe it or not. But here's somebody that's been waiting around, a, you know, he's been, he's been hurt or injured or paralyzed for a long time. And Jesus comes up to him and he asks this question, do you want to be healed? It almost sounds rude. It almost sounds like he's mocking him. Like, of course he wants to be healed. Why do you think he's waiting here? What do you think he's doing? But it's not that simple because look at his response. Look at what he says in verse 7. The guy says, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Now, we're going to look at this response a little bit closer here in just a minute, but here's what I want you to see at this point. He doesn't say, Well, yes, absolutely, I want to be healed. What he does is he throws a pity party, and he invites Jesus to come and attend he says, uh, no one helps me. No one, everyone goes in ahead of me. No one cares about me. And what this moment does is it, it gives you a little window into this guy's heart. And I think if we're honest, it'll give us a little window into our heart as well. That deep down, we have an addiction to our suffering. We love our suffering. Now you hear that and you think, what is this dude talking about? What, what in the world what, what, how insensitive of a thing to say? What, how can you, why would anyone love their suffering? And, and here's what I mean. Here's what I want you to think about. When you experience something hard, painful, it does afford you certain benefits. And those benefits are the things that we really have a hard time letting go of. And here's what I mean by that. Think of, here's a few that I want to throw out. Just like this guy, when we experience hard things, our, our suffering it grants us other people's pity, other people's sympathy. And there's a part of us that really wants that. This is why um, in certain situations, we want to make sure that other people know how much we've suffered. We want other people to know that we have it a lot harder than other people. I have, I have witnessed conversations like this before where, I've, where there's a group of people and somebody will show up into the group and they'll say, oh, y'all, I am on the struggle bus this morning. My child woke me up at three this morning. They were sick. Other kids are sick. I have this headache. I wasn't able to go back to sleep. I'm just dragging this morning. I'm, just, it's, I'm, I'm not well. And then somebody else will say, oh, if you think that's hard, and then launch into their story. And you just watch, why are... Why are you trying to one-up them? Why are we playing this game of who's the biggest victim in the room? Why are we competing for who suffered more? And I think one of the reasons why we do that is because whoever's the biggest victim in the room gets the attention, gets the, gets the priority, gets the care. 
And if you don't give that person the attention, you don't give them the care, you don't give them the sympathy, well, good grief, you're a monster. You know how much they've struggled? I mean, we do this in um, young, young couples with young kids do this a lot where one spouse will go off to work and come home at the end of the day and be like, oh my goodness, I'm so exhausted. That was so stressful. That was so rough. Work was terrible. And the spouse at home who's been with kids all day long says something like, well, I hope you enjoyed your eight hour long vacation that you just got to experience because it's been chaos over here. And it's just this competition of who, who is, who's the bigger victim, who gets the attention, who gets the sympathy, who gets the free pass to go chill out and watch Netflix or whatever. And so the question comes to us and it says, do you want to be healed? And we think, well, I don't know. Because I like those little benefits that it gets me. I like having the, I don't want to give that up. Here's, here's another one I want you to think about that are, that are suffering, how it benefits us. It, it helps us justify our anger. If you've been hurt, if you've been injured by somebody, we love to keep that injury alive inside of us. We like to keep reopening the wound over and over. You know why? Because when you, when you have been hurt by somebody else, you know what it does? It gives you grounds to resent them. And we enjoy that feeling. We enjoy feeling noble. We feel morally superior. We feel they are clearly in the wrong. We've been unjustly, unfairly mistreated. And so it gives us justification to hold on to that anger and to hold it over them. And in fact, what it does is it gives us justification to feel like I never have to be kind to that person again. I'm exempt from having to love them. They are canceled, and I have, I've got reasons for it. I've got a justification for it. We love holding on to that. And so when the question comes, do you want to be healed? Then we have to release that. We lose our grounds. We lose, we lose our justification for resentment. And who does not want to feel morally superior to somebody else? Or here's one more. One more benefit that our suffering gives us is it um, provides you with protection, and here's what I mean by that. If, if, you're, if you're going through something hard, you're insulated from people speaking into your life. I mean, are you going to call somebody out who's going through chemo? Are you going to confront somebody about their gossip when they're grieving somebody that they've lost or somebody that's close to them? No, there's, they're, they're, they're off limits. And there's a part of us that likes to exploit that and shield ourselves because nobody else can speak into our lives. Nobody else can tell us to do anything differently as long as we're letting everybody else know how much we're the biggest sufferers in the room. Now, please don't hear what I'm not saying. Suffering is awful, and it is uh, worthy of our tears. In fact, the Bible invites us and calls us to grieve and to lament over our suffering, just like the man of sorrows himself, the way that Jesus weeps over our suffering. We're invited to weep over our suffering. I'm not victim-blaming right now. What I'm doing is I'm pointing out this thing inside of every human heart that when we experience suffering, we like to exploit it. We want to take advantage of it. We want to be able to manipulate other people with it. And so the question comes to us, and it invites us to do an examination of our addiction of those benefits. Do you want to release needing to be the biggest victim of the, in the room? 
Are you willing to release the justification for your anger that that injury provides you with? That's what I mean, this dysfunctional need to hold on to the benefits. But there's more here because we don't just see our addiction to our suffering, but we also see the deception in our suffering. And, and here's, here's where I want to drill in a little bit uh, deeper into verse 7, this response that this guy gives. Look at it again. He says, Sir, Jesus, uh, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Now, what's the assumption that he's making? I mean, he's throwing this pity party, but he has an assumption. The assumption underneath it is that he knows what he needs. He suffered long enough, and the conclusion that he has reached is what I need is I need to get into that pool. I need to get into that water. And he's convinced that's my, that's my top priority right now. That's my biggest need. But he's completely delusional because taking a bath in this water is not going to do anything for him. He thinks it will, but he's deluded. And so when Jesus comes up to him and says, do you want to be healed? He hears Jesus saying, what can I do to make your life easier? How can I fix your problems? He experiences Jesus like a, um, like a kind-hearted handyman that just shows up and says, okay, you, got some, you want me to fix some of your problems in your life? That's why he responds in the way that he does. When we experience hurt, injury, difficulty, things that are overwhelming, things that are confusing, it is easy for us to be tricked into thinking what I need right now is I need these circumstances to go away. I need the hard circumstances to get upgraded. I need the external factors to be changed. That's what I most desperately need. And so sometimes, you know, think about, think about this situation. Maybe you go through a breakup and you're hurting over this, the loss of this relationship and you can come to God, you can come to Jesus and say, I know what I need. I need you to take me into the pool. I need you to help this other person get back together with me. Or if they're not going to get back together with me, I need, some, I need you to provide somebody better. Have somebody else come along other than this person. What I don't need is I don't need you to start messing with my obsessions. I don't want you messing with my possessiveness, my dysfunction. Don't change me. Just put me in the pool and give me what I need. Give me what I want. Or maybe you're experiencing a, a painful, challenging relational conflict. And it's easy to say, oh, Jesus, I know what I need. I need you to make the other person realize that they were wrong. And I need you to make them grieve over it. And then I need you to have them come groveling before me for forgiveness. That's what I need. But, but don't give me compassion for that person. Don't give me empathy to put myself inside of their shoes and understand this story from their perspective. I don't want that. I just want you to give me what I want. Change my circumstances. That's what I need. A number of years ago, Adam Sandler was the guest host on SNL, and they did this fake commercial, this kind of parody TV commercial of a travel agency that was advertising trips to Italy. It was called Romano Tours. You can look this up on YouTube later. It's amazing. And the commercials, you know, it's just him explaining, here's what we can provide you with. We'll take you over here and we'll show you this. And you can see the Leaning Tower of Pisa and it's awesome. You can eat this. And it's kind of this whole commercial about here's what we do and here's what we provide for you. And then halfway through the commercial, as SNL tends to do, things pivot and he starts to explain. But here, we should be clear on what these trips 
can't provide you. I want to make sure your expectations are in the right place when you go on a trip with us. And so here's what he says. Remember, you're still going to be you on vacation. If you are sad where you are, and then you get on a plane to Italy, the you in Italy will be the same sad you from before, just in a new place. Does that make sense? He says, there's a lot a vacation can do. Help you unwind, see some different looking squirrels, <laughs> but, but it cannot fix deeper issues. Our friendly tour guides are happy to take your picture, but remember, the pictures you're in are going to have you in them. And if you don't like how you look back home, it's not going to get any better on a gondola. <laughs> but here's the point he's making. A trip to Italy is awesome. It's not going to fix you. Changing your environment, changing your circumstances might be really pleasant, you might see some different looking squirrels, but it's not going to change you. And the point that we see in this passage is that, you know, when, when hard circumstances come, the, the thing that we get deluded into thinking is, I know, what I, I know what I need. I need for the circumstances to get better. I need a trip to Italy. I need, I need my, my, the external things around me to get upgraded. And what Jesus is going to show us is that's not the problem. You can have your circumstances changed and, and it doesn't fix the problem. That's the deception of our suffering is we're so tricked, we're so easily deluded into thinking that the problem is outside of us. The problem is our circumstances. And, and, and Jesus leads him and he leads us into this third thing I want to show you. What, what is the lesson then of our suffering? If that's how we get tricked, if that's how we get deceived, what, what's the lesson in it for us? Well, look at what happens next. Jesus says to him in verse 8, he says, okay, well, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And instantly this dude's healed. Legs that had atrophied and were brittle and frail for 40 years almost suddenly can bend, suddenly he can put weight on them. He stands up, he picks up his little mat, his little bed thing that he was laying on, and he starts walking. His whole life instantly changed. He's got a whole new lease on life. He can dance, he can skip, he can jump, he can do whatever. And there were these um, Jewish men who see this happening, and because this took place on the Sabbath day, and there were these you know, strict strict social and moral codes of you don't work on the Sabbath. You're supposed to rest on the Sabbath. They see him carrying something heavy, and they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. They blow the whistle. What are you doing? What do you think you're doing? You can't carry that on the Sabbath. And look at what the guy does. He, he doesn't assume responsibility. He says, well, I, I, this wasn't my decision. He says, there's a guy, look at verse 11. He says, the man who healed me, that man, he's the one who said to me, take up your mat and walk. In fact, he doesn't even know who Jesus is. They're like, okay, well, who, who told you to walk? Who told you to do this? And uh, he's like, uh, I got nothing. Beats me. In fact, later in the story, Jesus comes back and encounters him. And then this guy realizes, oh, this is Jesus. This guy's name is Jesus. And look what he does. The first thing he does in verse 15, once he discovers it's Jesus who first. The, he's the first person in the Gospel of John to hand Jesus over to the people who want to kill Jesus. And he does this 
after he's been healed, after he's been, his life has changed. Here you have an example of somebody in the Bible who's been healed by Jesus and yet has no faith in Jesus. In fact, doesn't really even know who Jesus is. And what you see is that here is somebody who has been healed, but he hasn't been healed. His legs work, but his heart is still dead. His circumstances have changed. He got that trip to Italy, but he's the same him. He's still self-reliant, self, full of self-preservation, willing to throw anybody under the bus to save his own skin. This guy's a mess. He's been healed, but he hasn't been healed. He has not learned the lesson that was intended for suffering, which is what? Well, let me set it up this way. When our daughter, who is not here at the moment, uh, was younger, little baby, she was a very light sleeper and a very light napper. And if, if you have young children or if you, know, if you know of parents who have very young children, you might know how important naps are for the child and for you. Because when the child naps, you're finally free to shower, to eat, to use the restroom, you know, to do like normal human stuff that you were not able to do without a child on top of you. And so Zoe Kate, when she was younger, she was such a light napper, such a light sleeper that when, when you were rocking her to sleep and putting her to bed, it created this problem because once she fell asleep in your arms, now you have to get, you have to get rid of her somehow so that you can be free to go do what you need to do. And so you would walk into her room and her crib would be in the corner of the room and you'd lightly, delicately put her into the crib. And as long as you didn't jostle her or make too much noise, she was fine. But then you cr you've just created this other problem because now you've got to get out of the room without stepping on anything or making any noise because any creak, any stepping of a squeaky toy, she wakes up and the whole process has to start over again and you're rocking her for another hour or whatever. So as you're making your way to the door, Catherine and I would become like ninjas, like stealth ninjas tiptoeing through a maze of toys and books, and then you'd get to the end, and all you had to do was close the door. But this stupid door, when you closed it slowly, it would squeak. And so you, you couldn't close the door, and we did this over and over and over. You'd try to close it fast, and it, it wouldn't make it less squeaky. And so eventually I realized, okay, we can fix this problem. I remembered, oh, I have a can of WD-40 under the sink, you know, under, the, under the sink in our kitchen. And so I go there and get the little WD-40, spray the little hinges, silent, magic, problem solved. You know what I did with the WD-40? Put it back under the sink. Didn't think about it ever again until something else squeaky came along. That's how this guy's relating to Jesus. You fix my problem, sweet, I have no more need of you, no more interest in you. I can discard you at will. That's how most people relate to Jesus. That's how most people relate to God. We come to church, we, come, we pray, we, we, we engage Jesus because we're desperate, things are hard, we need something, I need you to give me this A in this class, I need you to help me get back together with this person, I need you to help me with my anxiety. 
I need, uh, there's a big decision. I don't know how to make it. Help me, help me, help me. And, and, and then eventually enough time passes and life goes back to normal. Or maybe you even got the very thing that you wanted. Let me just put them back in the shelf. Don't have any more interest in you. Don't need you anymore. The lesson of our suffering is the thing that we most desperately need is not alleviating our pain. It's not making life easier. It's not having more comfortable circumstances. The thing that we need is him. The thing that we need is Jesus, not a trip to Italy. And so the big question comes, how do we learn the lesson then? How do we relate to Jesus where he becomes the thing that we want and not just the thing that we use to get the thing that we want? Well, just zoom back and look at this story again from how, this, how Jesus relates to this guy. Here's this guy sitting there and Jesus just crashes into his life. He just shows up unprovoked. This guy didn't ask for it. Jesus is just there, ready to dispense healing and mercy. And he does. And what does this guy do? He turns around and throws Jesus under the bus. He says it was, he blames his breaking of the law on Jesus. And then what does Jesus do? In verse 14, he pursues him again. He comes after him again, a second time. This guy has totally betrayed Jesus, denied Jesus, discarded Jesus. Jesus doesn't care. He comes after him again. Mercy is chasing him. And what does this guy do? He turns around and does the same thing, throws him under the bus. And what do you see? You see that this guy is not able to outsend Jesus' mercy. His love and his mercy and his compassion for this guy keeps coming and coming and coming and coming. And what that shows you for you and me is that you and me have given God a million reasons to give up on us. And he hasn't and he doesn't. He continues to come after us. He continues to chase us with his love and with his mercy. And that chase leads Jesus ultimately all the way to the cross. And at the cross, what do you see in Isaiah 43? Isaiah 43 says, it is by his wounds that we are healed. We are not healed by better circumstances. We're not healed by things getting better around us. We're healed by his wounds, by him showing for us his, the extent of his love and his mercy for us so much so that he was willing to be wounded on the cross in our place. He who was whole became broken so that we who are broken might become whole. He who was full became empty so that we who are empty might become full. And when you begin to realize, okay, that's how much he loves me. I can't exhaust his mercy and his grace for me. When you realize that that is true of you, he starts to become the thing that you want. You're able to release all the so-called benefits that suffering gives you, you can release the resentment. Who cares about being right? Who cares about being the biggest victim in the room? You found something better. You have found him. All that other stuff you can release, you don't need it. 
And when you experience suffering and when you experience pain, what that does is it doesn't, it, it stops driving you deeper into yourself, deeper into self-pity, resentment, hatred. It starts to drive you into the arms of the one who has suffered for you. And when you take your suffering and your pain to Jesus, what that does is it actually makes you more humble and kinder and gentler, and you actually begin to have compassion and empathy, maybe even for the very people that hurt you in the first place. And so here's the question for you and for me is, do you want to be healed? Do you want that? Because uh, if you're anything like me, dysfunction feels very safe and very familiar, and it feels like home. And so to leave that and to walk in the ways of health, to, to walk in the ways of Jesus, it's very scary. It's very disorienting. It's a whole new way to do life. And yet that's what he's asking. Is that what you want? Do you want to be healed or not? Well, I'll leave that question before you for you to consider and for me to consider as well. Let me pray for us. Oh, Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to see uh, the healed life that you're inviting us to. And it is scary. It is different. It, it is disorienting. It feels foreign to us. And yet I pray that you would uh, give us eyes to see Jesus who joins us in it who empowers us through it. I pray that you would um, meet us in our own suffering, meet us in our own pain, all the big and the small ways that we feel overwhelmed, that we feel confused, that we feel burdened. Help us to know how to grieve those things well, to grieve with hope, to lament, and to not uh, have what is toxic in our own hearts twist those things so that we in some ways might be able to manipulate others but free us, free us by, the, by your spirit and by King Jesus himself. And it's in his name we pray, amen.